Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music tonight. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. On this Sunday night, I'm to the fourth message that I've been doing in a series of four messages on salvation, security of our salvation, the assurance of our salvation. And tonight I want to talk about evangelism, and I want us to be in Matthew chapter 28, and the last two verses of that chapter, the last two verses of the book of Matthew, in what we call, of course, the Great Commission. Evangelism is an important subject. Evangelism means good news. It's made up of, of two words. Anytime we put an E-U in front of a word, it means good, like a eulogy is good words about someone. And in uh, our language, how it came to us, the Greek word that begins with E-U to us begins with E-V. It's just in a translation type of, of thing. But in, after the E-V is the word angel. If you see that in the word evangel or evangelism, you have good angel. Well, you know that an angel in the Bible is also a messenger. So in essence, uh, evangelism means the good message or as we often say, good news. So our, the message of salvation is good news, a good message that we give to people. As a matter of fact, when you see the word gospel in, in your New Testament, which, by the way, appears 104 times, gospel appears 104 times in the New Testament, it is always the word evangel. It's the word euangelion, good news. And so although we may say evangelize, we're actually saying the word gospel. And so this word appears all over our New Testament, and uh, evangelism is what we do. So what is the gospel? You remember if someone asked you what is the gospel, where you would go to define it? Well, we go to 1 Corinthians 15, don't we? And in the first four verses of that great chapter, Paul tells us, uh, here's the gospel that I received, and here's the gospel that I'm giving to you. Three things, that, Jesus, that Christ died for our sins, the death of Christ, that he was buried, and then that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Interesting that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you could go to people with all kinds of messages. You could go with social messages, political messages. You could go with religious messages. But if you don't go with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not giving the gospel. You're not giving the good news uh, because it is the fact that he died for us, for your sins. He died in your place. The fact that then he was buried, he didn't stay in that grave because he was sinless, because he was the son of God. He rose from that dead, from that grave. And uh, because of his resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. So that is the only truth that can save. And when someone believes in Jesus Christ, he believes in that. He believes in the person who he was, and he believes in what he did, that is his death, burial, and resurrection. We looked at that uh, when we looked at what salvation is. So why do we evangelize? Why, why do we do it? And here at the end of Matthew 28, verses uh, 19, really 18, 19, and 20, you have our instruction from the Lord himself. Let's read it together, 18. Je I'll read it to you. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore 
teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Why do we evangelize? Well, number one is because Jesus told us to. <laughs> That's what he's doing here. Uh, here and in Acts 1.8, before he ascended back into heaven, uh, he said, you'll be witnesses unto me in all parts of the world, right? From Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the world. You know, there are more reasons, of course. One that I think of is there is a hell that exists for lost people. There's a heaven for those who come to Christ as Savior, but hell is real. I don't like to think about it. I think it's a terrible place. I, I hate to think of anyone going there, the worst sinner that ever walked on the earth. Hell forever. But there is a hell, and most of the world is going there. Most of the world doesn't know Christ as Savior. And so the only thing that can keep them out of that place, the only thing that can keep them from going to that place is the gospel, is the message of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at this Great Commission. There are a number of ways, of course, that you could approach the subject of evangelism from uh, specifically how do we lead someone to Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit. To, uh, you know, missions is evangelism. To uh, preaching in a pulpit is evangelism. Uh, Bible studies can be evangelism. There's lots of things. But let's go back to this instruction from the Lord about what we are supposed to be doing and what the church is supposed to be doing. And you'll see that my outline is very much from the text. So I'm taking the words from the text. And so the first is, go ye therefore. There are three words that I want to talk about. them. <laughs> go ye therefore. The first is the time involved. And here's an interesting thing, because it comes out in our translation as if that's the command, and then making disciples or to disciple is, is not. But actually, going is not the command. It's a participle, a plural participle, which you might say, now, as you're going, as you're going into all the world, that's what he's saying. And then the command will come after that. So the command isn't necessarily to go. However, there, there's enough uh, example in the New Testament, both the Gospels and, and the rest of the New Testament, that if we don't go to them, they'll never hear. If, how can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach except they be sent? And so somebody has to go. Somebody has to send. That's true. But here... Uh, there is, it's not a command, but it's an assumption. He's saying to, the, to these disciples, now I'm going away, but you're going into all the world. So as you go into all the world, here's what I want you to be doing. That's basically what he's saying. He's assuming that we will go. It's kind of like when Jesus gave his, his instruction about prayer. He said, when you pray. He didn't say, if you pray. <laughs> He assumes that you're going to be praying, and so when you pray, here's what you say. And so here, when you're going in all the world, here's what you're doing. And Acts 1.8 is really a companion verse with this. Here's what it says, you'll remember. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in what? 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And so, uh, as you're going where? If you're going around Jerusalem, if you're going around the neighborhood, if you're going around the rest of the city, if you're going around the rest of the state, if you go to the other side of the world, you're supposed to be doing these things. And that is the go or the time involved, I say. And by the way, this is basically, in the, in the picture of the New Testament, this is the church going into all the world. So he knew that he had started the church, that these disciples were the first members of the church, that there would be 120 in that upper room before he ascended back into heaven. And he's saying to the church and to all of us who ever joined the church, that is the body of Christ, here's what you're doing. You're going into all the world. I'm going to say in a minute, guess what? You and I are the uttermost part of the world from Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, the gospel has come to us over the years. The gospel has come to us because as the church went out from Jerusalem, uh, finally got to Smithville, Missouri, <laughs> it's because faithful people did this as they went, generation after generation, until it finally came to us. So there's the time. Secondly is the people involved. Go ye. Well, that comes from uh, the, uh, uh, the expression of you are going, you're the ones going, you're the church again, you will go into uh, all the world. So the question would be, and this question has been asked, is kind of interesting. Well, did, did they accomplish this task in the first century? Was he speaking to 12 disciples who did it in their lifetime, and they went into all the world in their lifetime? And when you look at the geography of where the population was in the world at that time, you might conclude that those 12 disciples did a pretty good job of going wherever people were. I mean, they were all over the Middle East, all over down into Africa, all back up into Europe, and by the time Paul was done, all across there, maybe that was it. Do you know that in my uh, uh, church history study and my travels over in England, we studied, uh, remember William Carey, who is the father of modern missions, and, and his partner Andrew Fuller and a, and a few other men, they lived in a time, and this was the 1700s, they lived in a time when that's what many church people in England believed, that the, that the disciples of the first century finished the Great Commission, and that was for them and not for us. And so they did not send out missionaries, they did not go out witnessing, uh, because they thought that the first century believers had finished it. Well, William Carey, Andrew Fuller, uh, and a number of men that were in there called Fellowship began to be burdened about that. Is that really the truth? And so William Carey wrote a, a booklet called The Inquire into the Obligation of Taking the Gospel to the Heathen. Do we have an obligation to do it? Fuller wrote one, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation All Over the World. And what they said was, you know what? They didn't finish it. We have to still be doing it. As a matter of fact, one of Carey's reasons was he went to these men who were Baptists, by the way. William Carey was a Baptist. Andrew Fuller was a Baptist. And uh, all of these men who, who didn't go were Baptists. And he said to them, why do you baptize? What do they have to say? 
because it's right here that we're supposed to, right? Oh, so you're taking the second word, but you're not taking the first word. You think the second word is for us today, and the third word, because they had churches that taught the word, so you'll do the number two and number three, but you won't do number one. No, what we realize is we have to take them all together. And in 1792, the, the Baptist Missionary Society was started, and William Carey was their first missionary, and that is what today we call faith missions. And so faith missions is what you and I practice. We do in our church where our missionaries go out on the faith that we will support them, that we'll hold the ropes, that we'll pay for it if they'll go. And that's what they did in that first missionary society. Well, there's a therefore then. Go you therefore. What is that? That, that is the reason. In other words, our authority. Back to our text, verse 18, Jesus says, all power, exousia, would be authority. All authority given, is given unto me in heaven and on earth. So therefore do what? Therefore you go and take the gospel to the whole world. So what is, our, what is our authority for doing it? It is the power that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And think about that. Who is it that is telling us to go? The God of all heaven, the one who is the head of the church, your Savior who saved you from hell is asking you to make sure the gospel goes into all the world and saves other people from hell. And what are we called in the New Testament? Ambassadors. So he sends us out into all the world, and we are ambassadors for our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as American ambassadors, you know, are representing us in some foreign country of the world. That's what we do. We are his ambassadors, and so uh, we go. You know, I thought of that, that verse in Acts 1-8 where you have those circles. You know, you have Jerusalem, then Judea is the area around that, uh, and well, and then Samaria uh, beyond that, and then the uttermost part of the world. And I was thinking of the of the word concentric circles. You know, concentric circles means they all have the same center. They all have a center where they start. Well, if you think about that, their center was Jerusalem, but that's not our center. Our center is Smithville, Missouri, or Kansas City, Missouri. And our uttermost part of the world now would be Jerusalem. So everyone has had a concentric center, that is the same center. Then there, there's a word eccentric, which it, for circles means it's off-center, like planets that orbit around the sun are eccentric, they're off-center. But what that means too is that you and I uh, have obligations in our farthest part, too. We have obligations not only in our center, but our farthest circle. But I like to think of it as telescopic. And that is, you know, a telescope is right here. Here's Jerusalem. Then here's Judea. You open it a little farther. Here's Samaria. You open it a little farther. Uh, here's the uttermost part of the world. We have an obligation to go to all of those. We need to be evangelizing at home. We need to be evangelizing around town. We need to be evangelizing in our own country, planting churches and helping, and we need to be evangelizing everywhere. And, and that's why we support missionaries. That's why we send them. And as much as we can, that's why we go. This is the church scattered. I'm going to end up in a little bit talking about the church gathered for teaching, for baptism, teaching, and things like that. 
but there's the church scattered into all the world. So go ye therefore, because of these things. Secondly, still in verse 19, is as we have it, I'm reading the older version here, teach all nations. Now you probably know, and that still may be the word you have in your translation, but some would translate it disciples. But here's the interesting thing to me about this, and I have a little disagreement with saying it like this. Often it's retranslated, make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples, or as you're going into all the world and make disciples. I don't think that's a proper translation, the, and here's the reason why. Because then the verb has changed. Then you make the verb make, and the direct object is disciples. You know, if you have a, an action verb, and I say to you, hit the ball, the verb is hit, and the direct object is the ball, but I could say, hit your neighbor. <laughs> I could say, hit me. You know, if I have a verb, then the completer uh, is something else. So if you say make disciples, really what you're saying is you make them. Make, and then the word disciple. Well, you could make waves, you could make ships, you could make a pie, I don't know. But to say make disciples is not what it's saying, actually. But the verb in the sentence is the word disciple. Go and disciple all nations. What does that mean? You go and preach the gospel so that people get saved. I'm reading a book right now by a good man, and every other thing he said in the book has been very good. But he takes the idea of make disciples, and what he ends up doing is, rather than preaching the gospel, just discipling, quote-unquote, people the rest of their lives. Is that what he's saying here? Then why have the word teach at the end of this command? Rather, go and disciple all nations is the action. And that means make Christians preach the gospel, see them saved. Disciple them means to make Christians. So, it's my thinking that even in the Gospels, the disciples are believers. And the disciples who follow Jesus are people who have believed in Jesus. I know the idea of, well, disciples are learners. Disciples are people who are being taught. Well, yeah, they get taught, but they're disciples because they believed in Jesus. The disciples, Acts eleven twenty six, 26, were called Christians first at Antioch. Disciples are Christians. So the command here is to disciple the nations. The command is you go and preach the gospel so they can become Christians. That's what we're doing. That's what the command is. Now, the process is all the nations. Go disciple all nations. And again, not going, as I said, is not the command either. But as you're going, disciple all nations. You know, this process that we do isn't always welcomed, is it? Uh, I talked before the service about some of our missionaries who are in very dangerous parts of the world, and they don't want those missionaries there. They don't want to be changed. They have their own religions. They don't want Christianity, and they persecute uh, those who become Christians. Uh, but the command is to go even there, go into all the nations. 
and do this. Do you remember Matthew 13, and it's the parable of the sower? You remember that? And the seed goes out uh, to all the different types of soil. There's the wayside. There's the stony places. There are the thorns. And then there's the good soil. And so what does the sower do? He sows the seed everywhere. He scatters it. He broadcasts it. And so some of it falls on pretty rough ground. <laughs> As a matter of fact, most of it, three out of four. So, so think, for example, of all the missionaries preaching the real gospel all over the world with money from uh, people who support them, and how many people that hear it actually get saved. I, I think if we had 25%, we'd be pretty happy with that that one in four people that hear the gospel all over the world. But we're to go to all those nations regardless of what they are. Jesus will say in Matthew 13, the field is the world. The field where we sow is the whole world. We're to go there. So thirdly, disciple all nations. Ethnos is the word for ethnic. We might say uh, sometimes uh, uh, customs or culture, but here is the field then, and that is Jesus said, the field is the world. Well, go into all the ethnic peoples that are out there, all the nations of the world. I like in Luke 14, where Jesus is talking about discipling uh, different people, and by the way, that's where he says, if you're not willing to forsake father and mother and all of that, you you cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to give up all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Their disciple is specifically a believer. But remember, he, it, was a, it was a parable in Luke 14 about I've, I've, a man who made a great supper, and the supper was ready, and so he sent out invitations, and there were people who made excuses, and those are the excuses. And Jesus said, well, then you can't be my disciple at the end. But then the, it goes on like this. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly then into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. I mean, if my friends won't come, then go out and preach the gospel to them. And so they did. But the servant said, Lord, it is done as you have commanded, yet there is room. Remember that expression, yet there is room. So the Lord said unto the servant, well, then go to the highways and hedges. I mean, go even farther than the city, go out of the highways and hedges, and then you have the word compel, compel them to come in. And then he said, if a man doesn't do this, he cannot be my disciple. And so what I'm saying is, it has always been, go farther out then. Go where the people are. Go to all nations and make disciples of them, or I should say, disciple them. So, remember, uh, you remember when Jesus sent out 12 disciples? And the reason he did that is because basically they were only supposed to go to Israel. And there were 12 tribes in Israel, so 12 was always the number of Israel. Go, he sent out 12 to the 12 tribes. But then later, remember, he sent out 70? Remember that? 
And they were allowed to go even to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans, the 70 were. And you know why that is? Because in that day, they believed that there were 70 Gentile nations. There were the Jews, and then there were the nations. And they believed that there were 70 of them. By the way, that's why the translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language is called the Septuagint, the 70, because it was done by the 70 nations, not by, the, by Israel. So here you have a, an example of even the Lord himself sending out the gospel first to the Jews and then to all the nations. And so that's what we're to do too. Now, how do we do it? Basically one at a time. You know, we can cast a net and try to pick up a whole, uh, a whole lot of fish at once, and they had their way of doing that in those days. But uh, you and I basically have better, better luck with a uh, fishing rod. <laughs> you know, we go out and we catch one fish at a time. We can control that rod and we catch one fish. And you know, that's how we see in the New Testament, even Jesus. Jesus went to Nicodemus. He went to the woman at the well, the rich young ruler, and even in his death, the one thief on the cross winning one at a time. Paul went to Sergius Paulus on, on the island of Cyprus first, the Philippian jailer, Lydia, uh, all of these, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. He won one at a time wherever he went. And Peter won Cornelius, Dorcas, the crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple. In other words, we can do that, folks. We can win one at a time. We can win somebody to Christ. And like I said, we have a, a better uh, chance of catching something with a rod and reel than we do with a whole big net. And so use it. Use that one-on-one -on -one, uh, action. So go, therefore, disciple all nations, and then baptizing them or baptize them. This also is a command. This is what we're supposed to do. Now, I want to uh, uh, emphasize three things, mode and motive and then the method. These are kind of three words that we've always used when we talk about baptism. So let's talk about the word baptize first. Go and baptize. That word baptizo, remember, in that language means to immerse. It means to put something under the water. Even if you were using it in some other way and I put my hand in my pocket like this, I could literally in their language say I baptized my hand into my pocket. I immersed my hand into the pocket. Acts 8.38, I think you have there, and, and I've used this uh, uh, as an example. Here's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. He runs down there to that one man. He wins him to Christ and... In verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them, and then they came up out of the water. Now, why is it that they needed enough water to go down into and to come back out of? Because he needed to put him under the water. So that's what the word means. Now, it is the only usage we have in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, even for cleansing in the Old Testament, they were immersions. So the only baptisms we know anything about in the New Testament are people that were put under water. 
Now, some have tried to argue that maybe there was sprinkling or pouring or something like that, but we never see the examples. Some people talk about, well, there were household baptisms. You know, the Philippian jailer was saved, and then his whole house was saved. And Lydia was saved, and then her whole house was saved. And so they argue, well, there were probably young children, and surely they wouldn't put those young children under the water. They must have sprinkled them. So there must have been baby baptism in those. But, of course, that's to read into the Word rather than to read out of the Word. The, the Bible never says that, of course. Immersion has a unique picture. And that is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Acts chapter 6 teaches us, that we, do we, are, are, uh, we have died to him, we're buried, and we're resurrected in the likeness of his resurrection. So every time I baptize, I say those very words, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So baptism has that unique way of picturing death. It's a grave. As a matter of fact, if I baptize somebody and don't bring them up out of the water, it will be a grave. So for a moment, you're in a grave. And then you come up out of that water picturing what? The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism must picture in order to be biblical baptism. So we're to do that to our converts. Now, you know what? That's just as much of the command here as to disciple just as much of a command to do this. We, we are not to leave converts unbaptized. They, they are to follow the Lord in biblical baptism. And I know I'm speaking to the choir here today that you who know the Lord as Savior have found a way to be baptized. You know, I, re, I, I told you the story this morning about myself, how I, I made a false profession at nine years old but was really saved at 11 years old but because they had baptized me at nine, which they shouldn't have done, I didn't have a testimony about it, I never thought about baptism again after I truly got saved until I was 16 years old. And all of a sudden, being a little older, coming to church now on a regular basis, it dawned on me, I haven't been baptized to picture my salvation. So I went to the pastor and said, I want to be baptized. And I told him the story about what had happened. He said, yep, you need to be baptized. And so they baptized me on a Wednesday night when the water hadn't been uh, warmed up, and it was cold as ice, but I did it. <laughs> and he didn't hold me under there very long either. So, uh, but, but baptism then comes after our salvation. Now, what is the motive that leads into the motive? And that is baptize who? Baptize them. The Roman church has taken this to mean baptize the nations. Go into all the world uh, preach the gospel to all the nations and baptize them. Is that what it means here? We're to baptize the nations? And so in their unique way of baptizing, which is to sprinkle babies, they have gone into all nations of the world, and as they sprinkle everyone who's ever been born, they make them part of their church, and they grow up Catholic. Is that what this command is? No, the them, of course, is the disciples, those who believe, those who get saved. Acts 2.41, at Pentecost, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Look up that word throughout the book of Acts, and every time someone gets saved, that Philippian jailer, then he baptized him. Lydia believed, and they baptized her. Uh, those people who get saved, every one of them in the book of Acts, got baptized. And we're supposed to, too. Now, 
We don't baptize babies, and we don't baptize unbelievers. It's not right to take somebody who's never been saved because he says, hey, I'd like to do that. I'd like to get baptized. We wouldn't do that. You have to have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and be saved in order to be baptized. And that is exactly why we don't baptize babies. Because it's impossible for an infant, a baby, to have believed in Jesus. So even sprinkling, if it were a biblical mode, which it's not, of course, if it were, you're still baptizing someone who's not believed. And so they, different denominations have come up with different theories. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to baptize them on the promise that the parents will lead them to Jesus and all kinds of things like that. No, baptism's a confession of faith. Interesting thing about us, and I, I like to brag on Baptists every chance I get, but we take our name from this. Our denominational name, if you will, was given to us by others. We are rebaptizers. Anabaptists were in the 1500s. You know why? Because the Catholics baptized babies and the Protestants baptized their babies. And you know what the Baptists did? They won those people to Jesus and re and they called it rebaptized. And the Baptists said, I didn't, "We didn't rebaptize anybody. They they never were baptized, and we baptized our converts." And that carried on until they just did away with the Anna A N A and just called themselves Baptists. And uniquely, then, our denominational name is unique among major denominations because we don't have a name that describes our polity the way our church is organized, we have a name that describes our doctrine. We baptize adult converts. We baptize those who have been saved, and that's why they called us Baptists. That's okay. And Baptists have suffered for that from both the hands of the Roman church and even at the hands of the Protestant church and others for baptizing adults who had been sprinkled as babies. So that's who we are. That's our motive. Someone has to believe in order to be baptized. And then I say the method, and that is because we're told here to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. We call it Trinitarian baptism. We do it in the name of each one. And why is that? Because that's the gospel also. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have had their part in it, but... Primarily, it's because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And so the death, burial, and resurrection picture pictures the Son, not the Father, not the Spirit, but what the Son did for us. And so we find a couple times, by the way, that uh, in, the, in the Gospels, that they were baptized in the name of Jesus, Acts 2, 38 at, at uh, Pentecost. They believed and then they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Or in chapter 8, verse 16, uh, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, there's a movement that came out of that called the Jesus Only Movement. Kind of an interesting thing. It's, it's out of the Pentecostal movement. It was called Oneness Pentecostal, Pentecostalism, where they only baptized in the name of Jesus, but it led them finally to believe that Jesus was the only true God of the Trinity. And they went off into some really uh, uh, bad doctrine because of that. Well, why, 
Why do you have that expression? Because, again, when we're baptizing, though it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of the whole Godhead, God who loved us, Holy Spirit who convict us, Jesus who died for us, we still picture what Jesus did, the death, burial, and resurrection of what Jesus did for us. And that's why sometimes in the name of the Lord Jesus is emphasized. Okay? So it's not trying triune emulsion is right, and that is uh, uh, for the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But trine means three, and there are those who dip somebody three times, once for the Father, once for the Holy Spirit, or Son, once for the Holy Spirit. But again, that's the wrong picture. Our baptism really doesn't picture the Trinity. It's just under the authority of the Trinity, but it pictures what the Son did in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we do that once. And by the way, just like you can only be saved once, you can only be baptized once. Someone may have put you under the water twice, but only one of them was the actual baptism. Uh, you can only actually be baptized the one time, and you never have to do it again. We have two ordinances of the church, right? And the two ordinances are baptism, which you've done once in your life, at least once the right way. But then we have a second ordinance that pictures our whole sanctification, our, our whole Christian life, and that's the Lord's Supper, and we do it often. We do it every time it's offered. So those are the two pictures that we give in our Christian life. So I want to just say one more thing, and that's the teaching in verse 20. Teaching them. Now here we have the instruction. Here, here is, if you want to borrow that word discipling, here's, here's when we teach that is in that sense of discipleship. Didasco is the word for teach. It is that we are supposed to teach our converts then the word of God. Our missionaries go out all, the world, all over the world, and the first thing they do is preach the gospel and see people saved. They, they disciple the nations, and that's what they're supposed to do. And the next thing they do all over the world is baptize them. Same thing we do here. And then they spend the rest of their lives teaching those people. They start a church, so those people have a church to come to. They may be building buildings, which obviously they have to do. They begin Sunday schools for children and the rest to teach them. They have Bible institutes and even Bible colleges to train their own men to go out. And they, they are constantly teaching after the disciple, and the baptism. And praise the Lord for that. Now, we, we sometimes borrow the term Bible study, but it's a way of evangelism because actually lost people can't study the Scripture. They don't understand it. Uh, it doesn't dawn on them what it means. But people can get together, and, and they call it a Bible study in order to do what? In order to evangelize, in order to show people what the Bible says about salvation. So that's a, that's a good thing, even though it's a borrowed term. Now, the second word is teach them again, and of course, then uh, these would be the disciples. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And so now they are teaching these disciples. And so though we use discipleship to describe Bible study, uh, it's a word that really describes soul winning. But we do both things, no matter what label we put on them. We win people to Christ, 
we baptize them, and then we begin the teaching process. And you know what, folks? Some of you sitting here in front of me tonight have been in church all your life. Uh, some of you, it must be two lives. Some of you have been here forever and been in church forever. And you know why? Because the teaching never ends, does it? The learning never stops. How can we understand this word? How can we get to the bottom of it? We really can't. And so once we're saved and baptized, the process of learning starts and it never stops as long as we're in this world. And what are we supposed to teach? All things. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. All things. So here's the church gathered. Here's teaching the word of God. Paul said, I've not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And that takes a long time. Scripture that is inspired is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man of God or the person of God might be mature or perfect, thoroughly prepared to every good work. So here's the church gathered. Remember I talked about the church scattered is into all the world. The church gathered is doing what we're doing right now. And, and maybe you and I have looked at this very passage how many times in our lives? And how many times have we read it? How many times have we heard a lesson or a, a sermon on it? But every time we go back to some passage, we're reminded, we're refreshed. Maybe we learn a new detail. We, we connect things we didn't connect before, something like that, and it helps us. And so the church gathered does a lot of things. We pray, we sing, we fellowship. But you know what our primary responsibility of the church gathered is? Teaching the Word of God. That's our primary responsibility, to carry out this great commission among us, and we have to always be doing that as the church is gathered. So I'm saying to you, evangelize. You and I are to do this, not just our missionaries. We're supposed to give the good news, and we're supposed to do it to the whole world. And I say to you and to me, we can do this. You can do this. You can evangelize. How can you do it? You say, I'm not a preacher. Well, you don't have to be. Number one, do you have a testimony? I mean, do you live a life that is a testimony to Jesus Christ? Then live it in front of people. You can start there. We can all do that. We have literature that that you can leave people, gospel tracts or booklets or whatever, and you can hand those out without even saying a word sometimes. You can do that. A word fitly spoken, how good is it? A word, just an encouraging word, something that brings a person back a second time, just a way to speak to some people that kind of opens the door slightly. There are words fitly spoken. You can do that, and maybe if you get the chance, you can explain the gospel to somebody uh, fully and tell them how to be saved. And I think if you follow those first rules, God will give you that also. I say do it in the way that you can. I remember hearing a street preacher. I've heard a number of street preachers, and I've done that also in my life, but I remember <laughs> when uh, our kids were little, we went to a Broncos game. Sorry about that. I know that you don't mention that word in Kansas City, but we went to a Broncos game. We lived in Denver. And after the game, we were walking out, and all the crowd of people, you know, going out the gates. And there was this guy standing up on the uh, concrete wall where we were walking past, and he's got a Bible, and he's preaching to people as they walk by. 
and I'm one of the ones walking by. And I, I remember looking more at the crowd because I kind of understood what he was saying. I'm looking at the crowd. People are laughing. People are pointing. People are shaking their heads. You know, he wasn't very well received, but he's preaching, preaching, preaching the gospel. I remember seeing somebody in London on a street corner, and they had to get a permit to do this, and two guys, and they're taking turns. One guy preaches for a while. When he gets kind of tired, the second guy steps in, and he does it. And I stood there and listened to him for a long time. I kind of enjoyed it, you know. I asked him some questions about who they were and where they were from. Well, remember I mentioned A.W. Tozer this morning? Here's something from a biography about old A.W. Tozer. You know who he is, don't you? You've probably read books about him. Maybe you've used, uh, you know, uh, a lot of his uh, books, and he's, he's a great evangelist. A.W. Tozer was raised in a tiny farming community in western Pennsylvania. He was converted to Christianity as a teenager in Akron, Ohio, while on his way home from work at a tire company, he overheard a street preacher say, if you don't know how to be saved, just call on God saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Young A.W. Tozer heard a street preacher say that. Then it says, upon returning home, he climbed into the attic of his house and heeded the preacher's advice and was saved. He went on to 44 years pastoring and preaching and writing the gospel. Any word fitly spoken, any time the gospel goes out, it goes out with the power of the one who sent it, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't pass up an opportunity. Don't think that your amount that you do is too small. Uh, no telling what God will do with the little thing that you give. All right, stand with me, if you will, as we've just thought about tonight, evangelism and why we do it. Let's ask the Lord to help us, too, as we try to do this very thing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the words in Scripture that encourage us to get out of our comfort zone, to go into all the world, to even go to our own Jerusalem. And Father, we all, we all fail in this in many ways and in many times, but we would rather succeed. We would rather have the boldness that we need, that we know it comes from you. So, Father, help us that we might be those people, that we might participate in this great endeavor of evangelizing the world, not just our missionaries, our preachers, and others, but, Father, all of us, each one of us. So help us to do this and encourage us, and we we'll thank you and bless you always for what you do through us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song then that will encourage us about this. Kent, come ahead.